Reading Room, a literary podcast devoted to the works of Appendix A. Here we open the library doors of the Sanctum Socorro to you. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum Reading Room. Whether you're new to the literary world of Appendix N, a diehard fan of the genre, or even just tuning in to see how certain titles tie into a particular set of role-playing game rules, we invite you to join us as we dive into the history and influence of Appendix N. We'd like to open our library to you and inspire readers to explore these new worlds. And speaking of which, later on in the show, we are going to announce our drawing winners we will be getting books and many new worlds to explore. Tonight, we continue our exploration of the progenitors of Appendix N with a look at the blazing world by Her Grace Margaret Lucas Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And to do that, I am Keeper Bob, and with me is Keeper Jen. Hello. And we we have both we have both uh, gone through the the. Uh, Jamesian language of uh, of the blazing world. Why don't you why don't you tell us about it, Jen? Well, the full or, or original title of this was the description of a new world called the Blazing World, written by the thrice noble, illustrious, and excellent princess, the Duchess of Newcastle. That that tells us something right there. And uh, let's just say. Um, we, we each read it in our own separate ways, right? Totally fair. For the synopsis, it, it's actually quite grand. A young woman enters this other world, becomes the empress of a society composed of various species of talking animals, and organizes an invasion back into her world, complete with submarines towed by the fishmen and the dropping of firestones by the birdmen to confound the enemies of her homeland. The Kingdom of the SV. That said, um, that, that, the fact that that was all one sentence tells you uh, probably as much as you need to know about this book. Uh, I To preface, we did say it was published back in 1666 as one of the original uh, science fiction pieces, perhaps. And mistakes were made and lessons were learned and we're very sorry. Well, um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not that it's bad, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's strange. It opens with a poem written by William Cavendish, the first Duke of Newcastle, which is her husband. You know, it's, it's, it's a sonnet. And, which, and the sonnet really celebrates weird. her imagination. Right. Okay, so it celebrates her imagination, but the whole entire premise of all of this is her feminism, so it's really bizarre that it's prefaced by this poem from her husband. And It was 1666! Oh, That's pretty forward-thinking for 1666! I forgot, people. I'm really, really sorry. I forgot what Elizabethan writing is like, and how few and far between things like periods are in a sentence. 
Uh, no, I I read the. I tried to read the book. I ended up going with the audio version. And I still, I still have conflicting emotions on that five hours of my life. Mm. Uh, and, and that was speeding things up a little bit because well, the prose was so. Well, before complex. we dive into the prose, which, which is complex, I will, I will give you that. Why don't we talk a little bit first about Her Grace, Margaret Lucas Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle upon Time. Her, her verboseness. It, well, it, yes, it her, wasn't, it, it wasn't Vancean. There weren't words I had to look up. It just <clears throat> kept going. Um, yes. Uh, and one of her uh, viewers is agreeing with me. She certainly had a strange relationship with punctuation. Speaking well, of relationships, Bob. Well, you know, well, let's, let's talk about her familial relationship for a second. I mean, she was the youngest of eight, right? So, so youngest, youngest child syndrome really had to kick in there. She was, she had a lot to overcome with four sisters and three brothers. And her and, mother was not a fan of the arts. Honesty and civility were more important to her mother. And so Margaret only spoke and read English all of her life. Which is, which is really fascinating when you think about the fact that she was an atten- attendant to Queen Henrietta Maria and traveled with her um, into exile in France. So, I mean, she spent time in the court of Louis XIV, speaking only. only spoke English, yes. Which, the Queen's English, probably. Now I see where we Americans get it. Uh, <laughs> oh, ouch. ouch. <laughs> Living in France, spoke only English. Uh, but What a precedent. But I want to talk about precedence and, and her feminism for a second. She published under her own name uh, at a time when women as authors tended to remain anonymous because that's that's the way society was, right? I mean, honestly, that was one of the things that drew me to this title was that fact in and of itself. Um, I mean, there there were some things, some redeeming qualities to it. But I still think maybe the introduction was the best part. <laughs> Speaking of that feminism, well, but I mean, her. I mean, she, she was she was an accomplished writer, and she covered a, a lot of different subjects. She was the first woman to attend a meeting, uh, the Royal Society of London. And so the she was for she was with like later. Thomas Hobbes, Rene Descartes, Robert Boyle. I mean, big big names, big thinkers, and she was a woman who was among them in 1667 which was unheard of the royal society did not allow women into their meetings for centuries afterward that's kind of thought provoking (laughs) well maybe i I, okay so she was a feminist she published her own name oh yeah she 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 challenged the contemporary belief that women were inherently inferior to men right that was that was a big premise in a lot of her writing and her audience uh, she knew was primarily women and she wrote about female characters discussing topics of natural philosophy, which was kind of edgy back then. Well, yeah. I mean, it, 
she's she's credited as being one of the first people to really speak out against animal testing, even when speaking out against animal testing wasn't a thing, because she wrote about animal cognition and how they were self-aware and how they could feel pain and how they were intelligent. So she she laid the groundwork for a lot of things to come, whether or not people today even remember her for that or remember her at all. Um, well, it, it, it wasn't just animal rights. Um, oh, no. The, the panpsychism, uh, where it, the belief, I had to look this up, the belief that inanimate objects are alive as well because they possess some form of motion, uh, even if it's not very rapid. Um, essentially, three parts. Bodies move in orderly and infinitely variable ways. Either they are moved by spirits or they are moved by bodies, but not spirits because that is mysterious. So bodies. Um, I, I, I don't know if she was all there by the end. Uh, that, well, she, uh, she went completely, uh, you know, the modern scientific worldview. So she kept her own small little worldviews and her her royalist and aristocrat stance at the same time, which is where we get this book. <laughs> certainly, she was a believer in British colonialism during a period of British colonialism. I, I will make I will make no pretext about that. But yes. but to be fair, I mean, she was she was kind of self aware of her own. I don't want to say limitations, but of of how far she had progressed. I mean, she insisted that her own writings would have been better if she, like her brothers had been, you know, had been allowed to go to school, right? I mean, she didn't go to school. She had, she, you know, a few tutors, she learned things, but the fact that she came as far as she did in, in the society that she did says a lot about her. And I think that, uh, that as a person and as an author, uh, grand allowances should be made for for how far she came. And then she argued that each person in society has a particular place and distinctive activity and social harmony can only be achieved when people acknowledge their place. I pointed out that she didn't go to school, right? I did point that out. There's and, the aristocracy in her. Well, yeah. I, but, but you know, when people talk about a product of their time, that is definitely a product of her time. I mean, that is, that is, well, let's face it, that is a, an opinion that is still held by some people today, right? It is just not necessarily the prevalent worldview that it was then. And let's combine that with the heavy religious tones, the, the speaking of, well, why have you only one religion? Mm -hmm. Why have you not multiple religions or or uh, when uh, not to get right. too ahead of myself here, I like to say uh, there are there are heavy religious tones in in this story particularly, uh, and yet Cavendish claimed orthodoxy and ang Anglicanism. Yes, but she CV. but she also supported the more negative theological view, the natural religion of the 18th century deists. And it it's kind of a, you can't, you can't be both. You can't have, you can't. I wanted the Make 17th century mind, couldn't woman. really support an 18th century, but I see where you're going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's when it gained, uh, gained its notoriety or whatever, but 
in a nutshell, political stability is the goal uh, in a lot of her writings and in this particular book. And uh, the sovereign should employ whatever means will be successful in securing it. And that goes back to everybody knowing their place and their roles. And I mean, there, there is wow. something to be said for political stability and peace, right? I mean, these are, these I, are good things. She was not in a, in a time when war happened at the drop of a hat. I'm just saying it, it's very thought provoking to me because she seemed to be exploring like all options. Like she, she had uh, her her philosophical debates with herself within these writings. Oh, we will definitely get to her having debates with herself in these writings. <laughs> <laughs> you, you bet, you bet. Um, I, I, well, why I, wait? <laughs> I, I, I've got to say, linguistically speaking, right? This is this this is not this is not a breezy read, and I say this is a person that breezes through most things. I mean, it was like, I don't know, 50, 60 pages. And it, it was, it was an effort because of the way that it's written uh, in that it's sort of a narrative and it's sort of not. It, it reads like your 12 year old nephew is, is recounting a story that happened at recess and has forgotten to breathe between sentences. Um, and that it just sort of streams along in in like ah. I don't know blurging blurts. But it's um, a little bit more understandable than the hiccuping speech of that one character in our last book, the Zena Henderson introduction. <laughs> fair, fair, and and uh, there's at least you know flow to it, and eventually the sentence is completed. It's not just all cutting yourself off. But I, this is this it's a slog uh, to get to it. Yeah. Well, and and stylistically, it's very different from what we're used to. We're used to to reading a narrative tale as opposed to, and then this happened, and then I did this, and then this happened, and then this happened, and and then these people did this. It's structurally speaking, it is it is very simplistic in its structure. It it makes it no it makes it no less of an important piece, and it it is. It is still an interesting piece, but the only thing complex about it is its language. Right? Everybody's a critic. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a little torn because it wasn't, it wasn't like dying earth hard to read. See, I found Dying Earth uh, much more engaging to read. The writing style, it, it was an acquired taste. I had to get into it before I could really get into it, you know. Uh, this reminded me of studying for the term paper that I had to write on Sir Walter Drake. Uh, Francis Drake. Back in, uh, the, <laughs> Sir Francis Drake. Oh, my goodness. It, it, Sir you know the way to cure your mouth. Yes. Uh, it, it's a... It reminds me a lot of this paper that I had to write on Drake uh, back in my early years at college and and all of the letters and correspondence that I had to weed through to get where I wanted to be. And yeah, it, it was this was homework. And so if anybody else out there 
took one look at it and said, nope. Um, well, that what, I would be curious what, to see I'm a show of hands of, of those in the in the chat who who read it or at least made the attempt. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I I I put my all into it two different ways. I finished the <clears> audio book. There, there was plenty of opportunity for me not to. Uh, but wow, wow, I'm just learning about her afterwards. Because I try not to do my research on the author ahead of time. Right. So, and, so that you're not predisposed one way or another. Right. Um, that thing about everybody knowing their place. There was a quote in one of her pieces that said, all bodies, including tables and chairs, as well as the bodies of organisms like human heart and liver, know their uh -huh. distinctive motions and are therefore able to carry it out. He was a member of the aristocracy. <laughs> there is a reason. Everybody must know their place. Okay. There, there is a reason historically that uh, that the peasantry rise up against the aristocracy. And oh yeah, King Gidra, we are so getting to that. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> as, well, yeah, well, we've got some great comments in the chat now. That that's yeah. But I, I mean, the, uh, the the story the story starts simply enough. Wealthy merchant sees woman, wealthy merchant falls in love with a woman, wealthy merchant kidnaps a woman, hoping to force her to marry him, and is struck down by the gods. That is, by the way, told in like two sentences, all of that, right? I mean, that could have been, that could have been an entire <laughs> right. chapter. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the seemingly unending chapter of dialogue that was used to fill in where exposition would have gone just fine that's what drove me nuts um well i mean but there's uh, well essentially there, there there's three don't offend it the books, right there's the, <laughs> the 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 romantical the philosophical and the fantastical uh, and the yeah yeah but but that first section, after you get past the the uh, two sentences that should have been uh, a fully fledged chapter, there's that <laughs> horrifying image. You know, they've, they've all these men, everyone aboard the ship has been struck dead except for our protagonist, and she is trapped on a boat full of rotting corpses, and she doesn't have the strength to throw them overboard, and so now they're beginning to decay and rot, and that is. That is an amazing bit of imagery. It really is. It sticks with you, much much like the smell would, but it really, really sticks with you. And unfortunately, you know, there's no real lingering because then she's immediately uh, essentially rescued by beast men as she is traversed from North Pole to North Pole, world to world. It's, but, it's a little bit uh, like prefacing Narnia, perhaps? I, I mean, I, I'm prefacing pretty much any of the taken from one world to another, but but the Beastmen really evoked like a, a fawn sort of image for me. It, um, well, well, uh, hmm. And to be fair, not only a fawn image, but, you know, the Birdmen were described as goose-like. If you've ever lived in the Midwest and dealt with Canadian geese, you know how terrifying chaos gooseman would be uh it would be it, it, that would just be a, a horrific and, and, and terrifying 
Um, a, another quick synopsis <laughs> in one sentence. A lady shipwrecked on the blazing world where she's made empress and uses her power to ensure that it is free of war, religious division, and unfair sexual discrimination. But, did, but see, did you get any of that fact, out of it? That misses that she is immediately thought of as a goddess. And while she says, no, 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 I am not a goddess, she has already, like in the span of a day, mastered their language, which is very, uh, which I, I guess maybe that's where, uh, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs got it with Tarzan, right? Uh, you know, white people with money wow. can, can, can learn a language instantly. Um, God bless. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. But there's, there's things in here Some that things I, I don't change too far. Yeah. There were there things in here that I thought were really interesting. I mean, she's, the, the Duchess is British, right? And so when she takes, she takes her time, which, and by her time, I mean more than six sentences, to describe the naval power of this new world. And and as as someone who is, is British, going on about the strength of a navy uh, makes perfect sense to me, right? That's <laughs> yeah, just, you know, wooden ships and, and beastmen, apparently. Um, Although we don't have huge sweeping descriptions for a lot of the, the creatures that she talks to, because no. we're focusing more on their philosophical views as she tries to get to know them in this quote unquote utopian society. Well, and it's it's very casual, um, right? Because I mean, right. all of the the people she encounters, I mean, like you like you've been saying, they they have their profession. The the birdmen are the astronomers. The the Bearmen are the experimental philosophers using microscopes to examine things. Um, ape men are chemists. The fox men are politicians. I mean, yeah, every every species has has its thing, um, and that in and of itself is very evocative. And you can tell uh, even from current pop culture, some of those are still drawn in similar lines. Dwarves are miners. Elves live in forests. Yeah, um, they certain. The, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But three hundred and fifty years later, they're still seen similarly, and and that was hmm, intriguing. But it, I, there was there was a lot of things in there that I thought were were very prescient. Right? I mean, she talks about you know ships with engines. Now, granted, you know, they weren't motors like we would think of. She uh, was a certain engine which would draw in a great quantity of air and shoot forth wind with a great force. And she talked about how they would put one of those towards the back of the ship to blow upon the sails and another one at the front that would cleave through the waves and smooth the way. Now, the, wow. the, the, the first engine's kind of really kind of strange, but the second I found fascinating in that she had they had a device that would smooth the water in front of them for easier passage and that that was just sort of the first of some of the interesting bits of weird technology or uh, or yeah. dare i say fringe science that would uh, that would come up that that certainly made parts of this a lot of fun that is that is incredibly futuristic for its time um my the descriptions of the areas and and some of the items were astounding to me. Uh, I think you you were mentioning one of them uh, in, in when we were going through things uh, about the raiment or something. 
Oh God. Well, I mean, again, she's nobility, right? So there was Mm -hmm. a couple things that really struck out to me there. First of all, um, none was allowed to wear gold, but the imperial race, which were only you know the, the nobles or the state. Well, that it, she comes from a time with sumptuary laws. Um, in in England, for example, it was you unless you were the monarch, you did not wear purple. That color was mm-hmm. reserved for nobility. Red was reserved for clergy. Um, I mean, the nobility were generally the only ones that were black, but that's just because they were the only ones that could afford it. But there were there were laws. If you broke these laws, you you paid taxes, you paid fines, and they were huge, huge fines. So right off the bat, it, it was that really kind of set in my mind that this is this is someone writing uh, and publishing decades after after the death of Elizabeth. This is so, so while not truly Elizabethan, it really kind of captures that feel as opposed to someone now trying to write of that period. But then, right. yes, there was the description of one because she meets the emperor, he says, You're a goddess. She says, I'm not. He says, I'll marry you and give you everything. And she says, Yes. And so she becomes the empress. And on her head, she wore a cap of pearl and a half moon of diamonds just before it. On the top of her crown came spreading over a broad carbuncle cut in the form of the sun. Her coat was of pearl mixed with blue diamonds and fringed with red ones. Her buskins, her sandals, it goes, it goes on. And then it, it, besides just how she's dressed, it's in her left hand, she held a buckler and that signifies the defense of her dominions. And... You know, in her right, she carried a spear made of diamond, which signified she was ready to assault those who proved to be her enemies. And I, and if you look at like a British coronation, and they've got this crown, they've got the orb, they've got the scepter, they've got all these things, and all of those things actually do have intrinsic meanings that uh, that certainly those those of us in, in the U.S. just don't get. You know, the, the person sitting on the throne, they've got a hat, they got a stick, they got a ball. That's really what we get. But this is a reminder that if you if the you items of state, they are items of state. They have a purpose. They have symbolism, and so she brings that symbolism in. And so it, it was another one of the things I really enjoyed in that it, it brought that period to life and stressed for me that this person isn't writing about that period. They're in it. Speaking of being in it, can we address like? <sighs> one of the earliest Mary Sue's a Duchess pulled a Stephen <laughs> King before Stephen King was a thing. Yeah. yeah uh, the Duchess of Newcastle is a character and she advises the Empress on how her society ought to be governed. And boy, do I feel haughty and pretentious even st- reading that sentence aloud. Uh, I, I will give props to the audiobook. Uh, not not even uh, authors, um, Narrator. narrators, uh, because I think they're doing the best they can with what they're given, and and they made it somewhat palatable. Um, yeah. Did did they add the correct level of snootiness? I mean, just about. It, it was yeah. That was that was uh, kind of astonishing uh, that 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 she put herself put herself okay. in there. Um, that, that got a jaw drop out of me. The possibly the first Mary Sue. Well, I mean, the first it, one it in a depends, sci-fi right? I mean, setting. there's 
um, one of the literal oldest pieces of science fiction goes back to ancient Rome. And it was a, a satire of travel logs of the period where people would, would write these long discourses about the, the fabulous places that they had been and they were, they would get more and more outlandish. And so, so this certainly, uh, this certainly uh, carries on that tradition, but it's, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, my spirit was called across the void. And, <sighs> mm-hmm. So, gee, Bob, how do you think this story holds up? <laughs> you know, uh, in a lot of ways, I, I, I find that it holds up interestingly in a lot of ways. Um a lot of it, there's there's portions of it that, to me, really call out old myth, right? I mean, when when she is describing the the labyrinth that leads through the harbor, this this maze to come in, that really evokes some of the old, some of the oldest actually writings about Atlantis, and and so there's this this very mythical feel to some of that. Um, and, and, and again, you know, this, it's a story that's really like someone from 1660s England recounting something that happened. And, and so it's almost like your, your, your woman on, you know, interviewing the woman on the street, you know, can you tell me what happened? Yes, I can. So this man kidnapped me and then the God struck him down and I went across the world. It, it, it has, it has a very, I would almost say honest feel to it in that respect. It is, it is certainly not, it is not uh, literally pretentious Uh, while, while the characters themselves might be, I think that the, the style of it is is quite unpretentious. Or it's time. I I, I think even, even now, uh, I can I can think of of things that would be you know far far worse. Now, I, people tend to be kind of split on this, and I've noticed that uh, people who read a lot of literature from the period have, have quite a bit to say on on the subject, and and tend to be fans. I mean, this is this is an important piece of literature, um, and it certainly is foundational, really, to to what eventually becomes Appendix N. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a well-written story, in my opinion. Um, it, 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 it's very honest. I, I find it interesting. Um, the places, or when she goes off, how about when she's talking to the spirits because she wants she wants to write her own book describing the gods in the spirit world. Uh, I, there and is, that's where more of the religious discussions come in, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot that is discussed there. Um, yeah. When she talks about the glorious and magnificent buildings, and the Duchess's soul is delighted. In in some ways, yes, it it might be it might be a very early Mary Sue. I mean, she has written herself in, but she's not written herself in as the primary character. In some ways, it is it is the anti Mary Sue. Right? I mean, the Mary Sue is normally you know, the, the author writes themselves into Harry Potter and they're more important. And in this case, she separates, but, but she separates 
herself from her protagonist. She gives advice and aid, but the Duchess isn't the main character. But, but you know, I, again, as, as King Keeter said, right, almost lost it when she wrote herself into the story to argue her husband's case for recovering his money lost when the nobles were exiled. Uh, yeah. And, uh, it, much like when Stephen King did it in, in The Dark Tower, it was, it was a moment where I just wanted to toss the book across the room in rage. But, but I moved past that. Right? I, I moved past it. Um, now, what, what Elena says is that as someone who wrote as a feminist, the belief of everything having its place in society and the universe seems discordant. That, that's kind of where I'm at with all of these beliefs. And I just don't know that they, they fit flush together. Well, well like so the here's person and her writings, if that I, makes sense. I, I would certainly say that there was probably some cognitive dissonance going on there. But when she, but you'll notice when she's talking, and, and this is and this is kind of mirrors the problematic beliefs of the time, when she's talking about how everyone has their place, everyone has their thing that they do, she's talking about groups of people, and she is specifically talking about the working classes, right? You know, she is she is talking about people that that work. She is talking about the not nobility. She is talking about the not wealthy. They have a place in this world and they know it. And so long as they carry it out, things are fine for the rich white people at the top. That is pretty much that is pretty much what drove most of Western society for a very very long time. Um, and and you would you would you would. Uh, certainly have found a very similar ethos in places as dark as like the Belgian Congo. I mean, oh, it can, is, can we not go with King Leopold's ghost? But, but um, I mean, it is, it is certainly something of, of the time, um, you know, trades, pe- trades, people don't go in through front doors, trades, people going through the back. Um, okay, but is, bringing the Belgian Congo into it. That was like, early 1900s yes but like i said but but this mindset would not have been out of place there it was all about i am wealthy you are not you have your place and it is work until you die and uh and that is that is certainly uh not not something that she necessarily disagreed with it was just that she felt that women weren't inferior to men but i think that if you were to have a discussion uh with Hang on a second. I'm going to get this right again. Her Grace, Margaret Lucas Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle upon Tyne, that uh, that she would tell you that uh, while while women were equal to men, that she and 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 hers were still of of greater import and value than tradespeople, and that women working trades also knew their place. It's not that they were inferior to men. It's just that they had their place. They had their thing. And that is what they were going to do. Um, I mean, it, it, this is this is very, uh, we we set out to, to conquer, right? Um, I, I did see one thing uh, in, in her speaking of men don't always know the best either. And I... I really, the one thing I had to pause on and record, you know, type down as I was listening, great counsels are most commonly slow because many men have many several opinions and long speech counselors raise far too many opinions that everybody has to counter. 
And this is why governments don't get anything done. And well, these quote-unquote words of wisdom, uh, okay, okay, you, you might be onto something. Well, and, I mean, she was definitely a monarchist, right? I mean, served sir, sir the queen, spent time in, in the court of Louis XIV. There was definitely a monarchist. Uh, and, and in a monarchy, at the end of the day, one person says, this is what we're doing, and they move on. Uh, but also, when you when you look at the story, it helps to look at it in its historical context, right? I mean, this isn't this isn't really that far from um, Jamestown, right? This isn't this isn't far from uh, the the British first coming to the New World to to the the Americas, and so you have kind of this this uh, period of of explorational fantasy. And, uh, well, yeah, again, Drake had already found San Francisco. <laughs> well, and, and again, while she would tend to send, you know, sum things up in two sentences that really should have been longer, um, it all it all sort of flows. I think the story flows from there. Um, I think it also helps to, to keep in mind that the story was originally an appendix to um, to a different book. It was an appendix to uh, Observations Upon Experimental Philosophy, a a serious scientific study of, of, of something um, mm -hmm. uh, or publication um, from 1666. And then two years later, it was published as a standalone. So right. it, it, it sort of, it, it built up a following amongst those who, who read such things. This, this was not, the, it, neither of these were books that were in the hands of the common person. And, and so it, it yes. catered to that audience. And, as and well, a fun as a bit fact, of, sorry? Oh, I was going to say, as, as a matter of fact, the, the very beginning, she is directly addressing the women who will read her book. Yes. And that's why I said the introduction to the book was probably the most fascinating part. Uh, as a fun point of trivia, the version that I ended up reading from, uh, it the description of a new world called the blazing world follows assaulted and pursued chastity. Oh goodness. <laughs> I just, I, I have to picture in my mind the, the coffee clutch or, or the tea time table of these women discussing books of mm, questionable repute and, and philosophy. Oh, Oh, who writes of such dangerous things? And okay, it, it tickles me. Well, I mean, even even in her epilogue, when she is sort of comparing herself to Alexander and Caesar and and Hector and and Helen of Troy, well, um, did not she compare creating the blazing world to the conquests of Alexander? Yes. Um, well, she said, but she said it was it was much easier and and uh, more swiftly accomplished then, right? So, so it's not she she didn't put it on par wow. with, but many but, things are easier than the conquest of Alexander the Great. But, but her her point was, if you've read this, you might think that 
you know, my intentions are to become an empress, that my intentions are, are to rule. Um, and I mean, this was, this was a period, right? I mean, there were revolution monarchs, monarchs were losing their thrones. There was a, there was a lot of chaos in Europe and, and she's saying that's, that's not it. What, what I am doing here is a far simpler task than conquest. Uh, creating this entire world is much simpler than conquering a single nation. That's, that's not what I'm here to do. Uh, but but she wanted to expound on her ideas of, of natural philosophy and, and things of that nature in a way that would engage her audience. And and I certainly think that she would have succeeded. Right? If she hadn't, I don't think that the story would even be available to you know, as widely as it is to, to be read all this time later. And she was the most often published female author of the century, which quite possibly because of her station, but it's still all, all of my qualms about her personal philosophy and theology and, and convoluted confusion therein um, aside, it is kind of cool to see that one of the very first utopian societies and you know, the futuristic ideas in there, the science fiction and the the speculative fantasy. It, it's kind of cool to see that that was written by a woman, no matter what her station. Yes. I mean, if you, if you look at, if you look at later pieces that came, right, if you look at uh, the modern Prometheus, Frankenstein, right? um, while that is, while that is, whether you consider it horror, whether you consider it science fiction, um, it is much more grounded, in, in things that are known at the time. Anatomy is understood, things of that nature. Whereas here, she makes some, I mean, this is, this is truly science fiction. She makes some scientific leaps. Not all of them are accurate. Not all of them are even close. Thank you. But, but they, were, <laughs> they, they reflect ideas that, that would make sense as the evolution of thinking of the time. So, so it's it's very still on the fence on that one. <laughs> you know, scientifically speaking, for the time, remember we're not that far from Doctor John D reading horoscopes to the royal court, um, and, and here right. she's talking about you know microscopes and the break and 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 the uh, the makeup of carbon, and you know and and looking at, at carbon, it, it was absolutely fascinating to read some of that, and some of it, some of it was near accurate with with what they would have been able to do. But tables and chairs still have their place and they know how to act with it. Because you sit on, <laughs> you sit on a chair and it supports you. You put something on a table and it supports it. They, but, they know their place. The fact that she believes people are like furniture is more troubling than she believes furniture is like people. Exactly. That's what I was trying to say. Mechanism was the modern scientific worldview of her time and she rejected it. <sighs> yeah. Anyhow, uh, that being said, it, it was definitely a mixed bag for me. Um, where where do we where do we go from here? I think uh, I think now that we have delved back three hundred and fifty years, perhaps perhaps it's it's time to wind it back pull, a little bit. <laughs> wind things back a, a little bit. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we take a moment and we will announce our giveaway winners. 
Will we have giveaway winners? We have we give away we're giving away two DAW collector starter kits. Ooh. From yes, the indeed from prize closet of mystery. Oh. I should just I should just uh, I, I, give, I like give Elena much. an audio yeah. clip that you could play. Yes, King, <laughs> definitely a palate cleanser. Um did so, someone say giveaway? So DAW Collector's starter kit number one goes to Michael Cathro. Awesome. And uh, and that is actually going to, that, that one I have in front of me. So as a reminder, let's see, that is. Oh, yes, great, babe. You missed it last month. We had a giveaway. And it is uh, DAW number 15, The World Menders. Uh, DAW 114, The Man with a Thousand Names. Daw 256, The Forbidden Tower, which is a dark over novel. Number 379, Eldare Across the Misty Sea. Number 449, The Anarch Lords. And number 520, The Dreamstone. And with that also comes Jen's copy of Pilgrimage by Zena Henderson. But yes, so the important thing is they are Daw yellow spines. I don't know if that's going to show at all because... You know. Yes, it did. Oh, good. At least on Twitch. It won't for the podcast. Sorry. Sorry. So that is, uh, that is the, the first of our Daw Collector Starters Kits. And winner number two? Is John Nickel. Very cool. I do not have that stack in front of me, but uh, both of them, I, I will be reaching out to both of our winners to get their addresses so I can get those mailed out. And I, I feel the pain of, of some of the people listening and watching now. I don't watch or listen to nearly enough live streams myself, and I miss out on a lot of cool giveaways too. But but again, you don't have to li- you don't have to watch us live. The the second dog electric starter kit was specifically given out so that the podcast listeners had had a chance to win. So we are we are we are still there for our listeners. So positive no. reinforcement. <laughs> Positive reinforcement of timeliness, right? Um, so what? So where to go from here? I think uh, maybe yeah, we've we've been doing a series now for a while on. Uh, I see that great, <laughs> and that's kind of creepy. Uh, you know, at least no, when I no, read no, the no, first no. sentence, to, I wonder if Jen would give away Bob for the night. Stopping right there, that's really scary. Make him sleep over, run games all night. Okay, I'm, I'm okay. Be but very little sentence, sleep. Bob used to run. Sentence, uh nine ten hour games for us every weekend and it was awesome but um i don't know it's getting a little old for that might have to schedule it starting at like noon anyway um you were talking about books bob (laughs) all right so well i I laugh because i'm right there with you we've we've been doing a a series now for for a little bit on uh, sort of the, the the women of Appendix N and uh, and the women of you know, the progenitors of, of Appendix N, and yeah. so maybe we sidestep for a couple episodes and we just talk about some of the other progenitors, um, and so the choices we're going to have for our next poll, we have Hugo Gernsbach, the author for whom the Hugo Awards are named, and uh, we're looking at the book. Ralph 1 to 4C for one another, which is Ralph 1 to 4C for one plus, uh, which is a, a science fiction novel from 1925. 
<laughs> H. Ryder Haggard's She, A History of Adventure, written in 1877, and it has never been out of print. Um, in, in 145 years? In 145 years. It's never been out of print. It's been adapted to film three times. H. Ryder Haggard, of course, also the author of King Solomon's Mines uh, hmm. and, and other kind of classic stories of that nature. William Hope Hodgson, The House on the Borderland, which is a particular favorite of mine, and mm-hmm. uh, a story that was that was specified and praised by name by H.P. Lovecraft. And that was, gosh, that was written back in 1908. Yeah. And finally, Clark Ashton Smith, the man who so should have been on Appendix N and, and wasn't. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith's early, early story, written when he was a teenager, The Black Diamonds. It was written in 1907, and it wasn't published. It didn't see print until 2002. So how hard are any of these going to be to get our hands on them to actually read a physical copy? They're all available on Amazon. Uh, Some of them are are free in Kindle. so they will not be difficult at all. I don't uh, do Kindle, but I, I know some of our readers do. Yes, I, I they're, do audio they're, versions. They're all out there. They're too. all available. Um, hmm. we, yeah, the Black Diamonds. When you think about a story that that went ninety five years before it's saw print. Yeah, math is hard. So uh, and wow. they're still That's talking okay. about renting me she out, Jen. They're still talking about renting me out in the chat in the chat box. You know, let let them get it out of their systems. You know, some of them will see us at Gen Con and some won't. Um, the poll and- is up and running, folks. So get your Ooh. votes in. Make with the clicky. I'm, I'm really torn on, on what I'm hoping for. Uh, mm. What am I hoping for? I'm going to go that Well, way. William Hope Hodgson has an early lead, but you know, Clark Ashton Smith is making a comeback. And and I would I would recommend to anybody voting who isn't Elena, uh, that you can actually weigh those votes. You can indeed. I'm not sure how that works because I'm uh, a lot. Down below your vote, it gives you an option to either spend bits or channel points. Voting again costs you 350 channel points, and you just have to confirm that. Oh, all right. Now it looks like we're leaning towards uh, William Hope Hodgson, but we will we will see. I, I've got. Uh, 27,000 channel points. I better put them to use, right? <laughs> well, I see it's going to be like that. Actually, I might change my vote. Uh, while the poll is going, uh, yeah. our, our next show, if I recall correctly, is going to be Tuesday, August 16th. Yes. Um, two Tuesdays after Gen Con. So we will be home and we might have our voices back by then. We'll be home. We might have had. Oh, Clark Ashton Smith has taken the lead. Whoa. Whoa. Clark Ashton okay. Smith, the Black Diamond. Um, oh, I'm so sorry, uh, Pax. The Haggard title was uh, She, A History of Adventure, and the Hugo title on well, the Bob Reed. The Hugo title was. One to four C for one another, which Ralph. is yeah. uh, Ralph. <laughs> yes, which it is literally. I'm going to throw this in the in the in the chat box because it's kind of fun. It, it's because that crazy. is Ralph. Yeah. One to four C for one another. 
which is literally Ralph 124C41+. And Grape Ape, I'm right there with you. I'm interested to see how his work will compare from his teenage years to his later years for Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah, I will, I'll drop a, an Amazon link in, which I'll also put in our, our show notes for the podcast. Oh, thank it, you. It, I need it, that. It's not an affiliate <laughs> link or anything. It is just uh, the, the first place that I found from, from which you can get it. I believe that might even be a, a... Do we have affiliate links for Sanctum? We should. Not with Amazon, no. Oh. Amazon's kind of kind of picky about uh, about mm. how much you sell to uh, to keep ones. I'm not oh. going to bother chasing it because well, no, no, I've no, got no. I've got better things to do with my time, like read the Blazing World. I'm sorry, okay. By Her I, Grace I'm Margaret not... Lucas Cavendish, Duchess of Pundit one time, and I, I want to say, um, so so I'm not the only one who voted for that one. No, no, you're not. Um, and and I should <laughs> I should point out. That you know, her husband was the the Duke of Newcastle one time. Uh, that that position has been vacant, right? It, it is gone. There there is no no, uh, no Duke of Newcastle. Period. At this point, um, I, I I took a look to see because had there been, I might have I, I might have been thinking about reaching out and saying, "Hey, do you have anything to say about the works of your ancestor?" You know, just so they could ignore me because, well, they probably you know being that wealthy. I probably still feel the way that she did about a number of things, uh, but you know it would have been worth a try. But no, no, they, uh, it is I, I, it is no longer a thing. The thrice noble, illustrious, and excellent princess, the Duchess of Newcastle. I just you know you refer to a duchess as her grace. Normally, it would be you know, her grace, Duchess of Newcastle, one time. But uh, you know, I, that's the title page as it appeared in her original manuscript. Yeah, because you know. Because ink was cheap, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> no, lives were cheap. Totally ink wasn't. was expensive. <laughs> totally wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Li- lives were cheap. Ink was expensive. Uh, yeah. Imagine having that as a title now. Well, and I'm, I'm going to need a bigger name tag. And, and, uh, <laughs> I can see you working the booth with like a four inch wide name tag, a foot wide name tag. Yeah. Kind of like any Gen Con badge, right? Yeah. Well, speaking well, of Gen Con, um, we're you know that's that is where we're going to be next. Uh, you'll you will be able to find uh, Jen, myself, and and Mr. Bruner. Mr. Bruner will also be a Gen yes, Con. indeed, and Mr. Well, lots of Misters and Mrs. Uh, involved with Goodman Games and the Road Crew itself, and all sorts of DCC luminaries. And the Ziggurats and the Chaos Lord and yeah, all all sorts of fun stuff. That's in like what a week and a half. You or hush your dirty, dirty mouth. Oh wait, uh, no, that's, uh, that's right. That's, it's two weeks from Thursday. Yeah, we'll be there in under two weeks. Well, so, yes, but so have... so Gen Con is coming. Hopefully, we will we will see any number of you there and. Uh, you feel feel free to uh, if you run into us, uh, give us your recommendations for books, uh, berate us for our poor taste in books, exalt us for our excellent taste in books. It's, it's not that we have poor taste in books; we just left it up to you all, and and we we were failed. You, you Again, failed. I, I don't think the Blazing World is a bad piece of literature. It. I would have preferred the Cliff Notes. If, it was fifty pages totally long. Honest. It was the cliff notes. If it was, if it was, if there was any more brevity, um, it would have been. I went to another world. 
I was a goddess and an empress. The end. Um, well, okay, the creatures were cool. The nautical stuff was kind of cool. Right. Um, there but, were even giants. I know that because she mentioned that there were giants. I, I, yeah, I, somewhere in there. Yeah. And yet the ending still, the ending was still more rounded out than that of Quite Keep. So, I mean, <laughs> something to be said there. Beggars it, can't be choosers, it didn't, I it guess. It just come to an end. But no, it's, it's an important. Still better than version. Dolphins of Altair? I enjoyed that book. It was just very weird. We didn't um, enjoy it nearly as much as we thought we did. Um, I, but but this this is not this is not a a bad story. It is, however, something that if you're going to sit down and read it, you need to go into it understanding that it was written in 1666. Yes, that uh, that is not going to uh, to be a breezy read, despite the fact that it has a, a breezy tone for the time. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but yeah. yeah. I'm I'm glad we read it. I'm glad we got into that little bit of history and I'm glad that we can now take it off of our list. And I'm really, really looking forward to getting into some people that we know are talented or at least I'm really, were. really hoping teenage Clark Ashton Smith doesn't suck uh, because this was one of my choices. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, so yeah. so we're having Clark Ashton Smith, a member of the Lovecraft Circle, and who knows? Maybe later we'll get some things like off the beaten path, uh, sci-fi from Liber. Maybe some Harlan Ellison in there. Oh, um, maybe Bradbury. Oh, you know, I, I would mean, we're talking about contemporaries. We're I would, not just I would, sticking with an accent. I'd certainly be interested in reading some something by Weird Uncle Harlan. But we will we will see. Um, yes, yes, uh, Matt. Uh, hopefully, it is not a power through book. Um, I'm hoping that it, that it pulls me. I mean, it's Clark Ashton Smith. Um, I'm figuring his early work will not be as um, rich, overly, overly, and obscurely verbose as some of his later work could tend to be. As Zothic. <laughs> or um, oh gosh. We read we read a short story for Sanctum Secorum uh, about the gargoyle. No, no, it was a short story. Yeah, uh, that was that was about it was about a single wizard, and I, I forget which one it was, but it was uh, yes, it was it was a it was a try. These are show notes we should have had open earlier. <laughs> I we didn't know that uh, Clark Ashton Smith was going to be our next read, and now we do, so we can discuss that next time yes. <laughs> in August when we return to talk about the black diamonds by clark ashton smith and for those we do see next month in indianapolis please be forewarned we probably won't have read the book yet by the time you see us so no spoilers pretty please (laughs) so everyone have a great night and be inspired good night guys Sanctum Sequorum Reading Room has been a production of Sanctum Media.